This is a music and arts podcast that sometimes veers into activism or social topics. Uh, But as of late, really, it's mostly a music podcast. And speaking of which, the song that played in the show is called Neptune's Next by Little Wings. And Kyle Field, who pretty much is Little Wings, is my guest today. And this is a really great episode. Um, It was we had such a good time talking that we went two hours and it's a two parter. And at one point, Kyle yells at me that it's going to be a two-parter in a loving, joking manner. But it's a really fun, it's, it might be one of my, it's in my top uh, favorites, all-time favorites of my almost 200 episodes. Um, speaking of which, if you like Kyle Field and you like Little Wings, check out my library or my Instagram page, Conversations with Dwyer is the Instagram. You could see some past guests. I've had Harmar, Superstar, Ryan Samball. From the Strange Boys, Tim Presley from White Fence, Alicia Bagnano from Bully, um, actually a lot of sub pop people. So uh, lots of music interviews to listen to if you like music interviews. Uh, a couple things about this episode, just real quick. Um, we had some technical problems. Kyle's phone gave out a couple times, and so I had to uh, edit some. So sometimes there's some weird jumps and sound just because he was on a cell phone and he lives in mountain area. So if it seems like it just jumps to a, like, that's why we had to do some fancy editing. I always try to do my best to try to keep it seemingly like it's flowing, but you know, um, also check out the show notes. There was, you could, there's links to all things Kyle. I know he has a cassette he did recently on perpetual doom label. Uh, he's got some re-releases coming and merch and stuff. So check out my show notes for that. All things Little Wings or Matt Dwyer. Um, the uh, also, uh, I, my voice sounds real. It sounds different in the interview because uh, I live right by the Bobcat fires. If you know anything about that and going on in California, it's just like forty thousand acres ablaze. And I went out of town for a while, but uh, it just really, really effed me up. Um, Real quick, if you want to go to themattdwyer.com, that will link you to all things the show, Patreon, uh, which would be great if you became a Patreon subscriber, or just tell your friends, hey, this podcast is cool, and help that would help me out a lot. Um, the second episode, part two, this, is, uh, this show comes out on a Wednesday. I'll probably post the part two a few days later on Friday, unless you're listening to this way in the future, which is how it works in podcast world. Then it doesn't matter. You can just go and listen to both episodes right away. Um, And that's that. So uh, please enjoy part one of my conversation with Kyle Field. You said you had fires coming right to your, like your backyard? Yeah, yeah. that was something I was going to say. I I have this policy, like since we moved to where we live now seven years ago, I don't tell anyone what town I live in. I understand that. Like uh, professionally, just because the comfort of the anonymity and the privacy is so luxurious that it's just... I don't know. It's just a weird thing because, you know, I've lived in Portland, Oregon. I've lived in San Francisco, California. And one of the most 
frustrating and annoying things to me, I think looking back is that people, ask, you know, you go out and play, so where are you guys from? And then you, it's, it sucks so bad to have to say like, oh, San Francisco, oh, I love Frisco, or like whatever. Like someone thinks they know you because of where you live, you know? <laughs> or like, like know what you're about, or like, oh, you're a San Francisco band, or like, oh, I could see that, or I don't know. Anyway, so I don't give anyone that, um, that advantage. <laughs> well, plus, if you're a, a man of notoriety, like you don't, if you have crazy stalker people, you which I don't really, and there's not, I mean, there's like a limited amount of notoriety. It, it seems to have been meted out over enough years that I don't think it's ever reached like this crazy critical mass at all at the same time. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think because it's been like so not with I was thinking about this like preparing to talk on this with you I was just thinking about album cycles and um, how instinctively I've probably been resistant to that all along because there's just something fishy about it and, you know, for you to put out a record and then, like, I read the, the book by the, the bass player from the specials. I can't remember his name offhand. But um, he's taught, you know, and it's like the specials. Um, and I loved their record in high school a lot. And then he's talking about they had this hit record that it took them, like, kind of a long time to make. And then they go on tour for a year and a half. And then the label wants a new record, like, Pronto, which is the classic soft, sophomore slump scenario, is because you've been touring your life away for the last, for however long that first record is hot. And um, you never get that ashen period of just gestating and, you know, letting the songs come again. It's like then you're forced to make a second record that's not going to be anywhere near as good. So I've never been in that position because no one's ever had any control over my timeline, you know? So I just wouldn't record until I had songs that I thought were worthy enough to record again. Do you, in those off times, do you continuously write or do you, because I know you do other forms of art too, do you, uh -huh. do you just like let it rest and sort of like percolate in your subconscious? I kind of, I kind of am always trying to keep all of the balls lightly in the air, and I'm not. I try not to ever like completely stop doing any of it, and I guess especially in the last five years, I've had. I kind of like caught up with myself and past myself where I was writing. Because I think I used to maybe finish a record and be like, oh, I'm done. But then there's kind of a lost feeling. And so now I think I just write and write. And so I have songs backed up, which is a better um, scenario than feeling like you might be suffering from writer's block or whatever. Right. Does that kind of drive you... I mean... It could, 
that you have an abundance of songs that you haven't recorded or released are you does that make you anxious to get them out or or do you more no <laughs> it doesn't i i kind of like I, I kind of feel like not anyone has heard every song i've put out anyway as it is so it's almost asking a lot other than for like the super listener to like just keep <laughs> putting stuff out <laughs> you know i uh the last week i have tried to listen to as much as i possibly could or, or since we okay so yeah you have a thank you you're welcome and i it's it's I, I I I love your music. I was thrilled that you said yes to this, but I was like, it's like climbing a mountain. I'm like, there is a lot of fucking music here. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's like 22 years so far. It doesn't. It doesn't seem like. I don't know. I mean, I remember when you came out and people were like, friends were like, you have to listen to this, and I went and bought it. Here for what uh -huh. is, is, is it? Uh, well, it maybe, might not be. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> you might not have bought the first one. <laughs> but uh, which one? Do, do you remember which one you got? Like green leaves. Uh, I thought it was Grow. I've, my CDs are. All oh, it was Grow. So that would have been. Sixth record, I'm but it sounds, but it sounds almost like the first record. <laughs> now I feel I like a fraud, <laughs> like stoned on a four track. But um, no, I mean, uh, well, here's another thing: is I think in many cases I did not put the date on the actual record of when it was made. Um. I don't know why, but I, I just kind of felt like leaving some part of it open wouldn't make it more timeless, you know? Mm -hmm. So the first one is called The Wonder City, and that begins the Wonder Trilogy, which um, I felt a lot of pressure making a first record under a new band name, and so... I almost like I planned three records so that I could spread out that expectation over three records, you know? And so I think I had the first, the first four records were probably made in the span of two years or so because there was one called the Wonderoo Preview, Preview that came out before Wonderoo. So those are like the, the four Wonder records. And then, um, but yeah. What was the pressure of putting out the f first album under a, a new name? Is, was that because of uh, Rodriguez? Was it Pope? Mm, kind of, yeah. I had had a band between Rodriguez and Little Wings called Lincolner that um, was my friend Adam Selzer, who I recorded some Little Wings stuff with, and we recorded Rodriguez stuff with, and um, Melissa Scales, who was the drummer. She's the first Little Wings drummer, too. So I, followed me into Little Wings but um, it was kind of like what was the pressure the pressure was to make singer-songwriter music in a way that w felt like it wasn't singer-songwritery that felt more artful or 
using a band name. Like I was really influenced by bands like uh, the Red Crayola and Royal Trucks because they were always changing their membership. And um, I remember an interview with Mayo Thompson when he said, "Our public, I consider our publicist as part of the band. So like there was a band photo of them and they're all sitting around this huge table at a restaurant. And there's like 15 people and it just says the Red Crayola. <laughs> but I knew that one of the people was the booking agent. One of the, it was kind of like... He's like, I consider every one of those people part of the group, you know, which I really loved that concept. And having come from a, a band, which was my first band, Rodriguez, that was such a tight and strict trio, and the songs were pretty... Um, idiosyncratic kind of like you couldn't go and jam the songs with someone else you know it's like only the people in that band could play them so it was neat to play them live because it was kind of like a power trio to use an overused expression but at the same time if if someone couldn't practice or didn't feel like practicing you didn't get to play music so it became super dependent on others. I kind of took all of those problems away because I just decided that with this idea called Little Wings that I could always do it alone no matter what, you know? And then if if other people could play with me, then but it'll always be called Little Wings, no matter if it's just me or whoever is there. And um, I feel like I got rid of so much of the boringest band drama stuff that you hear about so often. It's just, to me, takes away from songs so much. And I don't miss... Um, codependency in that way with music. You know. Is that if, is that a very common thing among bands like codependency? Every a lot of my friends I, who are I, in bands, it seems like there's a lot of caddy. Oh, well, I feel like yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, especially if almost if there's that kind of perhaps unrealistic hope that this band is going to quote make it in a way it's so hard for that to happen with a group of people that tries to stick together no matter what and you know whatever takes the fun out of takes the spontaneity out of it and I don't know I just think it's easier with a rotating cast or I shouldn't speak like I, I've kind of come full circle and now I have a main band on the West Coast that we're all, we all get along really well and none of us live too close to each other and we only, can only hang out when we play or occasionally, casually, but the only time all five of us or six of us get together is when, um, is when we're gonna play. And a lot of them didn't know each other before I put the band together. So then they became new friends off of that. So I don't know. And I have an East Coast trio, a bass player and a, and a drummer out there. That I, that was my last tour. But um, 
And that's a great band too. I love that band. I have like a nostalgic hole inside of me just that we've only done one tour together, but I think we played like like 11 nights in a row and it was just so fun. It was so light and easy and they knew every place that we were going. Um, so I got to just kind of tag along with them in their native land, you know, in their landscape. Yeah. Do you, when you put together like a new album and like new, are you, do you turn to certain musicians who you're like, when you're chasing after a certain sound, if that, I hope that is the proper way to. <laughs> I, I have not really done that. No. I usually kind of work with what I already have going. Um, I could. I could change in that way or whatever, um, but I feel like there's a, the ingredients are kind of already there if the songs are written, and so I almost try not to inform it, overly inform it, and just um, have the experience of recording the songs be kind of the midwifery process of the song being born, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> Um, I wanted to go back because you said something about it being suspicious. Was it uh, of, are you suspicious of notoriety and sort of fame? Is that what you were sort of um, getting at with that statement? Because I'm curious about that. What was the statement? You said that when I asked you about how I said you were um, um, a man of notoriety and you were like you said uh -huh. you were suspicious of of notoriety and 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 I was just curious if that was I think the the limited doses that I've experienced of it can it can be great like when everyone's feeling good and on the same page you know like at, playing live is the ultimate and the appreciation that you get in a room from people that are in the same room is kind of one of the, the greatest feelings um, and at the same time I think maybe it's important to learn to realize that that's a fleeting moment and that you're you, you should not believe that moment for the other hours of the day <laughs> yeah because that's, I mean, I think fame, like, screws a lot of people up, you know? And if it becomes, like, a drug to them, then they just keep um, trying to get more of it. Yeah. And there's so many, you know, like Kanye West just urinated into his Grammy yesterday on Twitter. Oh, I, I, like, I missed that. <laughs> that's, that's, that's new. <laughs> but he's like trying to get out of his contracts, his big, big time recording contracts or something like that. It's just kind of like, dude, you just took a bunch of Trump money and bought a bunch of fancy horses and property. And now you're complaining about your record label. I don't know. I mean, he's low-hanging fruit as far as critiquing a famous crazy person but I think it's pretty I think it's pretty obvious that like and if 
I think that that kind of peaking early is not that healthy for longevity either. The only solace for me is that most of the people getting that oral treatment are also having to work within that um, structure, the label structure with dead, like we need it by this time, we need this, and we need, you know what I mean? And then you're going to, like you're in the army now, then you're going to tour for a year, year and a half, and we're going to tell you where, and um, that just... I've always been afraid that my songs would dry up if I ever said yes to all of that um, stuff. And I just don't think that it's a sustainable model for that many people that they can still stay creative and still continue to make um, were you this aware of that when you were first entering into music? Because that's, I think a lot of, at least I have a lot of friends in bands and other, you know, actors and all that shit. And I, there, you mm-hmm. know, when you're 21, you're pretty fucking naive. Mm-hmm. And you... Well, good story with Rodriguez. Like one of the first three gigs that we played, this guy came up to us. It was at this coffee shop we used to play at. And, um, he was like a man. He was like a band manager. You know, he's like, I want to be your guys' manager. I've, I can't remember. There was some tie-in with Michael Jackson. No joke. Like, <laughs> and we were like, well, like it could maybe. And when um, we never heard from him again. But you definitely, I think that's a good question. I, I, I think there was always in me kind of growing up idolizing like SST records basically was kind of my benchmark for success because I thought the records that their artists put out the best that I'd ever heard Meat Puppets Minutemen you know Firehose all that and so kind of they kind of turned up their nose at all of that stuff and so I think I kind of did too. Yeah, it, it seems like that sort of, I mean, from a, a personal level, like labels like that and, and uh, Discord where they were just, it I, to me it inspired, because I come from a comedy background and everybody started mm. doing shows that were like five bucks, do it yourself, fucking do it anywhere. And, yep. and uh, which I, th- I don't, I, that taint, I don't know I was going to say tainted, but that inspired the way I've approached everything. Cause I didn't, I, I, the careers I always wanted were never the ones where people were like super goddamn famous. Cause that just seems like a fucking nightmare. <laughs> well, t- totally. I think it, I'm pretty sure it is. Like if you, if you got so famous that you couldn't walk down the street, um, when you're like 14, you might think that sound sounds cool, you know. Um, but I think some people still, you know, that some people like walking into a restaurant and having heads turn and look at them and people to be aware of their presence. And um, and I think that's also 
those people didn't do that that thing that I was talking about earlier where you kind of quarantine off those hours that you're on stage as being not real reality like look at me yeah you know did you have to learn that though was that something you had to acquire I mean I think yeah, I think I think the moss that you would gather by rolling through that same thing over and over again would teach you that hopefully if you're able to learn um I, I think it's almost about facing the fact that the person performing songs is is persona, kind of. Because if you don't put on some form of persona, you won't command attention. But then it's throwing that off once you're done and still being able to be a person or like if if you want to go talk to people after you know yeah harm our superstar i'm sure you know who Harmar is. I, I know of him for sure yeah but he he said that like he because he had this that persona is this crazy party guy mm-hmm. and that's not who he is but then that became who he is and it's like that's a dangerous fucking world to live in for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, is, yeah, I just, I know, like, when I was young and I would perform, I each, after every show, I was like, I would party like I just fucking won the Super Bowl. And I was like, I was like, what are you doing? No, I still do. <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, it's hard, like, I remember... <laughs> Like, it's just hard. I I always compare it to, like, a a night-waving job or a bartending job. It's like, bar closes, you're up. I've never been a bartender or waiter, by the way. But, like, you're up, you've probably been drinking a little. um, This is how restaurant people, you know, they they stay up till 3 in the morning. Because you're, like, up, up. You can't go to bed yet. And so, I once that energy source has been turned on it's really hard for me to turn it off and sometimes like on tour sometimes I'll sleep three hours a night and I'll be the last one to bed and the first one up and I kind of just blame it on the adrenaline because that's not how I am at home and the first night's always weird and rough and you miss home and then you get that shot of adrenaline or whatever and then you're like, oh, I want to do this forever, which you can't, or I can't at least. But I always have that illusion of, oh God, I was so, I was so scared to leave home, so scaredy cat. Like I should have stretched this out to three weeks, and it's you know, but like <laughs> agreeing to leave home for two weeks, three months in advance is always harrowing to me. But then after that first night, you're all like, oh man, it's kind of like summer camp. It's like homesick the first two nights then you have the best day of your life and then you're like no it's summer camp is ending in two days <laughs> are you, you know what I mean are you absolutely exhausted after those two weeks of when you get back to home it, it all depends like we did a five 
five or so week tour of Europe. This has been a few years now. But, um, and I came back from that and got an ancient European cold and was just, we were right, we were opening for um, Angel Olsen, so we were riding on their bus, but then, so that means you're like sharing germs with all those people for like over a month, you know? And that was exhausting. And other trips, like the last tour that I went on of the East Coast, it was just the three of us, or actually my, my friend from out here, who grew up in Massachusetts, came out. We'll go to the lobster pounds. He's like this gregarious. I mean, there's a crazy history of like, oh yeah, I booked the Pixie at uh, UMass their first time ever, and this and that. He was just had his own record label, was putting out seven inches, told um, stuff to the class back in the day, like in New York City, like so. That kind of a trip, I came back just so energized, and I had. You know, gotten like two posts, like we went to an antique barn and I, I collect rulers sometimes. It's like one thing I look for at thrift stores is rulers and clipboards. And so I came home with some of those things and, and I was, I don't know, it all depends on the tour. I think opening's the hardest because it's so hit opening for someone who's newer in the business than you are and or younger it's that crazy heart have you seen crazy heart the movie yeah i cried like three times i saw it by myself matinee san francisco i was already depressed <laughs> and i was like i was like oh, no like please but um yeah opening for a junior is a little bit trying and Denmark who's like why you've been a band for 18 years like why are you opening up you should be you're like yeah that's not the way it works I gotta go uh, see I think about this stuff sometimes too trust me <laughs> you know yeah I I mean I understand that fully because I've uh, I've been, Are you still doing the stand-up? No, no. I, I stopped like five years ago. I, I had an album come out, and then I had a kid, and I just lost my mm-hmm. desire to do it. I still write for some comedians. I write for... Do you know who David Koechner is? Champ, he's Champ Kind from... I know some. Yeah. I, 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 so Did you I, say... I, uh, I'm sorry. What was the question? I only know um, Kate Berlant and John Early in the in the in the contemporary. Oh, thing. David Koechner is maybe he's David Koechner is uh, Champ Kind in the, in the Anchorman movies. Whammy, the Whammy guy. Oh, okay. Yep. I, I write for him, and I used to tour with him. Uh, uh-huh. with, uh So like, and that I would we would just drink like you like you did. <laughs> but plus, with, yeah, yeah, yeah. Plus with him, like anytime we walked into a place the booze was free like it was oh yeah so i mean we were dangerous oh fuck it was da- like we were in san diego for a weekend and like we went to the blast point brewery and for lunch and they just kept fucking bringing out beer and i was like we have two fucking shows and we yeah yeah yeah. Uh, that guy though is has more energy than anybody i've ever known in my entire life and it's wow and it's coke free i don't know how right right good for him good <laughs> The ones who shrivel up like the Wicked Witch of the West, I think. <laughs> but, um, 
Yeah, but but also, does like when somebody says that to you about somebody being some like you're playing for a junior or something? But it's like, uh-huh. I, I don't. To me, like I look at your body of work, and I mean, you're kind of legendary in from where I sit. Do you? Would you agree with that? No, but <laughs> I mean, I think if you, if you think of your own self as a legend, you have to, it's time to go see the doctor. Maybe, <laughs> hopefully. Wait, can't you say I know. you can't say you're a legend and a genius? You can't walk around and say that all day. <laughs> I'm, I haven't tried yet, but um, I'll try. I'll try it at the grocery store tomorrow, <laughs> where no one knows who in the world I am. But uh, I have my own definitions of what that means, um, and those are other people that I look up to, you know? So in that relationship to that concept, I can accept that someone would think that about me, but the paint is still wet and I'm still working. That's how I, I feel, just about all of it. Who are the artists that you look up to? Who are? The, yeah, who are the artists? Like, well, Henry Miller, Rest in Paradise. Um, I still read things that he has written kind of about the human spirit, like in his later writings. And I realized that 20 years ago, he was like a huge inspiration because he's basically saying, I'm not writing for people who are alive right now. Like I'm, I'm writing stuff that's going to be around forever. Like he's like, I don't, I could give, I could care less what anyone thinks about what I'm doing. Like once he arrived, like in his late forties, fifties, of just like I love doing this, you know. So for him, or for me, his his entirely free spirit is just like goal, you know. That's and even his isolation, like when he was in Big Sur and all that. Where like, I get packages from all over the world, like sent to his tiny place in Big Sur. People send me coffee, cigars, tea, oranges, postcards, tobacco. Like, I was just like, wow, that must be incredible. And then 20 years later, it happens to me now, you know. And just with the music not maybe because it was shoved down their throats but they found it or a friend shared it with them or whatever so to me that picture of his success and kind of transposing it over my own life I feel successful in that way I feel like my art is a part of my daily life and that's the that's the most rewarding feeling is that I'm excited to, to I'm more excited to write now than ever or, or whatever or as, as excited as I've always been you know yeah that's right but, oh yeah go on oh I was just that's why I didn't know Henry Miller took that attitude of like I'm not writing for people living now is a crazy concept and I mean, and in relation to you, there is, there is sort of, there is a timelessness to your music, which I'm not the first one to make that statement. Um, Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> but I, I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad, and I don't know why that is. I think it's more probably about the sentiment of it than the production value. I would say. 
I don't think the production value is here or there. It's just kind of like it is what it is. Yeah, I don't. I think I, it's con the content maybe from reading tons of Alan Watts and this and that and like <laughs> just kind of like the way things work and just kind of trying to write using plain enough language that isn't uh, that isn't stationed in one decade or another you know yeah uh, it's interesting you mentioned Alan Watts because as I researched you and listened to your music, I found that there was a very, just the the overall world of views, there seems like a very zen sort of unfolding of, of things, like not forcing it. And that's, uh, I don't know, do you feel like I was, I was very inspired by by Alan. I listened to, listen to hours and hours of him. I could listen to him talk for for, for days. Yeah, I, like twenty one years ago, a friend loaned me an Alan Watts tape, and I was working at this liquor store on the central coast of California. Still, my favorite job I've ever had, and uh, besides making music, but um. And I drove up to Big Sur after work one night at like 11. I got off at 11 and just put on this Alan Watts tape. Drove up. It's like an hour, hour and a half from Candy's Liquor and Deli. And I was like drinking like a small bottle of Jack Daniels <laughs> on the way up. And there was no one on the road. And... And I've had, I mean, for the last 20 years, I've usually had a truck with a camper shell on it that I could sleep in the back. And back then, you could still park any power and just crash for the night. And um, that freshness, which I woke up today with this with new hope feeling, and then I find out it's a new moon today. And so I believe in the cosmos. Like, I really do. And I, it'll be like... I woke up this morning, I was like, wow. And I drank some Irish whiskey last night and I haven't had a whiskey in a long time. And it kind of gave me that same feeling of that walk ride up. Um, and one of my heroes is definitely David Berman, Silver Jews. And that was like, I, I was into the first Silver Jews records. I, I was already into Pavement and um, saw Pavement open up for Sonic Youth. And it was the first loose band I had ever seen, like at a big concert like that. And they had no, they had no pre-described um, stage demeanor. They just seemed like friends too. It didn't seem like a job. And that that felt like the biggest punk show I'd ever seen where the music wasn't like punk. It was almost like, ah, this is like Velvet Underground-ish or like it's alternative, I guess. And, um, and Matt Ward was there from Rodriguez on the ground. And then we made a Coke can pipe and then we smoked it. And then I just got gone 
and Kurt Cobain came out for and played one Lead Belly song, like in his pajamas, and then Mud Honey played, or maybe he played right between Mud Honey and Sonic Youth, and Sonic Youth came on, and I moved too high, and um, and I just all I remember from that night was pavement, <laughs> and then I was just a pavement fan <laughs> from then on, and then uh, what, and then. And then, yeah, and then I got into Berman. So I think, like, for, as far as, like, 90 indies lyricists, it would be Stephen Malcolmus and David Berman, and Will Oldham would be my three kind of heroes from that era. And um, I actually got to meet... I've, I got to meet Berman twice, and then Will Oldham and I became friends... 1998 um, just, he came through the town that I lived at at the time and played the radio station in the record store and I didn't expect to talk to him I was just going to go see him but um, he was pleasant and super interesting and entertaining and we've kept in touch over the years and he ended up appreciating my music which I wasn't really expecting it's kind of weird that way the two way road you know two way street like you don't necessarily expect someone whose music you appreciate to truly appreciate yours yeah it's uh, I've discovered like after Berman's death that he mentored a ton of people which I thought was really fascinating even if- I kind of I kind of barely discovered that too myself. But saw, it makes sense. I read one article after he died that some guy wrote who I can't remember. And then a while ago, I was messaging with this guy from Boston who was a guest early on in the podcast in a band called Hallelujah the Hills. And he mm-hmm. told me that uh, Berman did the same thing with him. And like he wrote this book. Uh, the guy, guy, Ryan, he wrote this book um, about. Uh, Van Morrison and his time in Boston when he recorded um, Astral Works. Oh, really? That was in Boston? That's yeah, the story is he wrote it. The guy wrote the story for the whatever the local free paper is, and it was about how Van Morrison was pretty much running from the mob. Like he asked for his residuals from his record label, and like they were they were like "fuck you," <laughs> like they weren't gonna. They were like, "we're not gonna pay you." And I think they sent the guy after him, and and Ryan. Um, uh, set, like interviewed the guy who he, he sent they sent after him and so he went in hiding in like Cambridge I believe wow. and, and worked that's when he wrote Astral Works do you know the other do you know the other story from the isn't it Astral Weeks Astral Weeks, Works yes. is the label right yes um, <laughs> I, I just lost a lot of cred I'm, didn't I I'm sure I've done that before no it's, a, <laughs> it's they're based on each other somehow but um I think with like recently it came out that the whole band on Astral Weeks was African American. Um, I didn't know that. And that I think one of the, I can't remember which member of that band, but kind of recently in an interview said, was Van Morrison a nice guy? I wouldn't know. He never talked to us. Like, he never addressed us or something. Wow. I mean, I've heard stories of him not being that friendly, like, in a way, but... Yeah. Have you ever tried that? Not talk to you guys for a week? <laughs> <laughs> um, only if we're in a 
big fight. <laughs> we call it the silent treatment. <laughs> I just always thought that it was like, cause you heard that about Letterman too. Like Letterman wouldn't talk to his writers and I was just like, what a, like, I don't know. We all struggle to get work through our career. And it's like, why would you be a dick? So like, why do you, I don't get that mentality. I just wonder if they draw a line and they're like one time on set or once I'm at the studio, I'm focused and I'm not in my chit chat. Like, you know, cause I'm, I'm just like completely focused on that the I, show or that, something. That I get. But like, I think he, the whole time, the whole week, the whole day of preparing or whatever, he never talked, never talked to any of his writers. And I was just like, uh, and I've heard yeah, it. That's weird. I just, it's, uh, yeah. I, he seems so great now though. Like he's with his new retired guy. Yeah, he's done a lot of uh, done a lot of therapy too. Because I read some article. Oh wow! Yeah, he did. He did. He used to have anger issues, right? He would like thrash his his office or his dressing room if the show didn't go well or something. Yeah, and he he sat down with some female writer that was on his show for years because she uh, she was like you know I was a victim of sexism and chauvinism and he like sat down with her and apologized and said like I was working through things and I'm sorry <laughs> it's like you know and that's yeah I mean I think if people have this weird sort of vision of fame like now I think people think that fame is there's some sort of like you're a whole person because if because you get there like you know we have distorted views of that world i think and it's like gosh i'm growing further and further away from it it just seems like every famous person eventually gets cooked it seems like the worst fucking thing it seems like the worst burden you could ask for because you can my friend said it recently or was it a friend (laughs) he's a new well he's a new friend but he said we were talking about someone we both knew and their press cycle or whatever and he was just saying well once you get to that level of fame you only either there's only two options to get more famous or infamy which I was just like that both of those that just sounds horrible to me I mean I I get anxious if somebody I know comes up to me in a coffee shop let alone strangers like every day like I would lose my fucking mind totally I saw Josh Brolin at a Starbucks once and he was wearing like aviator sunglasses and a black t-shirt of course shorter than you would imagine him because <laughs> that's always the case and then he was just holding a baby carrier but he was just straight ahead just minding his own business and I was just like that's how you do it like arms arms kind of crossed like holding up a baby carrier wearing some new balance tennis shoes just like and if you'd if I had said love the latest movie Josh thank you he probably would have went hey thanks man and just cut it like that right yeah I've never I've never approached it. I've regretted. I saw John Ritter at a party and I regretted not saying hello to him because he died like a few months later. And he was just, he was just off by himself. Like he was, it was actually a post SNL party and he was, and he was just like off in like this empty space by himself. It looked lonely. And I, and I, do you live in New York? I lived in in New York. I did for a little bit. And, uh, and you went to SNL parties. Yeah. I had some friends who worked on the show, so I would go, wow. 
pretty weekly. Um, wow. Not as exciting as it. It's really, it's like a high school dance. Like it's everyone's off on their own clicks. Right, right, like, right, 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 right. Like on paper, I was like, this is amazing. But it was always just kind of boring, overpriced. Like they don't pick up the tab. Um, Jeez. Yeah, I guess they did in the 70s. And, you know, then a bunch right. of. Right. But it was like, it was, it was never that great. <laughs> right. And then they would have an after party. Somebody would throw an after after party. So that would be like at some shitty theater or like dive bar that wasn't supposed to be open. And those would usually be fun, but you were already just on God, yeah. God knows what and fucking on. Yeah. You see, you were already out of your mind, so it didn't matter. Totally. Are you like. <laughs> Age-wise, like 70? Um, I mean, year, ni- 1970? I mean, ni- born 1970? I was 68. You're, you're, okay, cool. 72. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, we had a brief exchange about that on the down the old Instagrams. Um, right. But it, 50, but 52? Yeah, I'll be 52 in November. But I took... I, whoa, whoa what, November what? 19th. 19th? Yeah. My birthday is the 22nd. Fuck, my daughter's the 21st. Of November. Really? Yeah. She, because uh, uh, she has Coleman Hawkins and which who she's a fan of, which blows, like she'll like request, she'll be like, can you put on Coleman Hawkins? I'm like, fuck yes. I don't even know who that is. He's a jazz saxophonist. Uh, oh, cool. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And Dr. I've John. I've seen the name. Brad. But, uh, so we're Scorpios. Oh, this is... I'm on the cusp, but this could be an interesting question that one of the things I wrote down today, I said, autumn is my favorite season. Is it because I'm born in the season or do I just love what the weather does after summer? Like how summer is loud and loud and crowded and beautiful but stupid kind of. And then the fall is the first sign of introvertedness where the universe or the weather is kind of like, you know? I think it's... Looking inward? Yeah, because fall is also my favorite uh, season. Uh, And I grew up in Chicago, so like fall, autumn there. Dude, it's so weird because I... Sound like your voice and Tim Ratuli from California and Red Red Meat's voice sound very similar. To me. <laughs> uh, I I've I've met one of those guys once. My friend Dan Aid pl- lived in a one of the guys from California was a building manager in Highland Park for a while. Huh? How long ago? Uh, probably fifteen years ago. Mm. I don't think it would have been Tim. He's the one I know. Oh, I can't remember which guy it was, but I'm a huge... I only just met him. Uh, big fan of both of those. But yeah, but Autumn is like... I don't know. There's something... It is. It's. I never thought of wording it as introverted, but it is. It's like... I don't know. I used to love walking around the streets of Chicago and like it would be cold out, but not too cold. And you could smell fireplaces yep. and coffee shops. Like there's just yep. something warm and magical about it and yep. it, it does yeah. and coming home is kind of like walking into a warm-up place after you've been out in the sort of the bite of the air is pretty great right do you living 
out here, do you extraordinarily miss that? Or can you still, because I was talking with another friend recently who I was like, oh, my, you know, my family, because I have roots in the South and this and that, they think we don't have seasons. And I was like, we absolutely have seasons. They're subtle. But if you have lived here a long time, you, you can see it, you know? Yeah. But do you miss the the real or the dramatic season? <laughs> uh, I used to. I think if yeah. I if I lived through a Chicago winter again, I probably would like kill myself and maybe <laughs> Columba. Don't go there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, I, I'll kill other um, people. Good. Okay, I'm. It's funny because I lived in Portland, Oregon for two winters and I looked like Jack in the last scene of The Shining like after two months of like no sun that's it's funny because that's I almost said the same thing about winter in Chicago <laughs> like it, yeah, uh, t- t- right and it's like you know it, in Chicago it gets like 30 40 below and it's like you can't no I went at the end of spring like I actually timed a trip because Will Oldham was playing. And uh, my friend, I had a few friends living there at the time. And the airlines lost my luggage, which had like a, a, a down jacket and this and that. Holy shit. And, and it was like early, late spring, but the winds were, I mean, I was just like in a windbreaker in a final and this and that. And sweatshirt, thrift store clothes, but uh yeah, it's no joke, obviously. And if you're not used to it, like, you're doomed. When you go there from here and see people having just a normal kind of, like, smiling conversation, which isn't maybe that common to see outside when everyone's, like, like doing the cold grimace, you know? But um, you really feel like an outsider seeing people have a casual conversation, like, at a bus stop, and they're all bundled up. Yeah! Like, when do we get to go inside again? Or, like, I wish United Airlines had not misplaced my backpack. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't recall, I mean, I was, like, in my, like, youth, it was fine. I've been here for almost 20 years. Okay. So, like, when you're 25, the cold just doesn't mean shit. Going into a bar on a cold winter night is pretty great. Yeah. That's the one thing I think I miss. My perception of Hecog back then, when I, that would have been like around '96 when I visited, and maybe that was my first, my first time to ever visit there. I think it was. But um, coming from the West Coast. When you went into an one of those old dark bars that were like by that time hipster bars, almost known as or like you know you could tell there were people in brown thrift store clothes that were high, like <laughs> hanging out in the dark, you know, kind of. I just know and exactly like, what you're talking about. That's why I'm laughing. Yeah, and didn't and and haven't seen the sun in a while, but they're like talking real low and quiet over some whiskey at the bar, you know. I think. And uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, do you? Recall- and then well, back then I was like kind of. It wasn't lounge exit, but it was. Oh my God, 
Oh, you didn't see me. I didn't have a beard then. No, uh, <laughs> no, but I just remember I was like scanning the crowd, like scanning the bar and like you're like kind of sizing people up, but mostly almost in the same way as someone coming to Hollywood to hope to see a celebrity. It was like I was hoping to see grubs but who i didn't even know who he was yet then but uh like david grubs or like yesterday Sol or like someone from like one of those chicago indie jazz fusion knee bands or like i don't know yeah. it was kind of thick in the air was it a music band? and i love that you referenced lounge jacks because mm. that was well, i'm pretty sure that's I, I think i that's where i saw will Oldham was at lounge jacks that place it's that it's sad that that place got killed but it was like that i saw jim carroll read there which was pretty great oh cool and i never i fucking never got to see the jesus lizard while i lived in chicago I'm, now I'm. I, I never did either. I saw their reunion tour, and now, cool. now because of this podcast and some other things I've done, I've become friends with Yao. Um, but he's the, the main guy, David Yao. Yeah, he's the front man. Yeah, the mm-hmm. most insane person I've ever seen on stage. This, I've heard this all around the block. Yeah, and the nicest, heard that. nicest man. It, oddly, him, Wayne Kramer, and Steve Albini are the three names brought up on the show almost every fucking episode. <laughs> oh wow! In one way or another, they come up. It's so bizarre. I, um, I can bring up Steve Albini. <laughs> I think he just did. This is a really short story, (laughs) but we got to play at all tomorrow's parties in England and it was a slint. No, stop. It was a shellac curated all tomorrow's parties and Will Oldham was already going to be going. And I asked him if he wanted to sing with us on two songs or maybe two or three songs and he did and he flew out there for two nights he just flew to England for two nights to go to all tomorrow's parties and then like went home but um we covered uh this Fleetwood Mac song called Gypsy if you know it and uh Will maybe I can't remember if he had never heard it or had never sung it but I sent him the lyrics or sent him the song or whatever and the drummer from Slack, I'm blanking out his name right now, um, stopped me. Like I was walking away later that night. And he was like, hey, Kyle. I was like, whoa. Like the Slack drummer knows my name. I'm like, I'm crazy. And he was like, Fleetwood Mac cover? Pretty lame. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, really? And he said, no. And that, I felt like that was almost like a funny Chicago style compliment to actually be dear, but have like a crusty exterior approach to it. Isn't is that one of the ways? Almost be a little tough. Yeah, there's a very which uh, when uh, there's a very Chicago trait where it's like you kind of got to knock somebody down before you before you compliment them. And I guess right uh, as I got have gotten older, I don't find that charming anymore <laughs> right because it's like i don't know can't you just fucking be sincere well he that was 2005 he probably doesn't do it anymore either <laughs> uh that's pretty hip that albini those guys 
you were part of their tour. Because mm. I, I feel like Albania. No, 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 no. Oh. This is funny. <laughs> There's a caveat that I, I forgot <laughs> to include. Uh, well, the deal was was a silver Mount Zion was curated by Shellac. And we were touring Europe in support of a Silver Mount Zion. Lee Baggett and I, my one of my longest running Little Wings cohorts. Do you, are you familiar with him? He would be a great person to have on your podcast, actually. And we've been friends for 20 years. He's just flying under the radar on purpose. Just, he's just even more underground than I am and likes it, you know. But he's a little bit old. He's been around longer than I have and been playing music like quite a bit longer than I have to. But um, it was the two of us opening up for Silver Mount Zion and the tour manager that we only worked with once was this sweet guy named Dirk from Germany. And um, he said, little we parties and they said no they're not this is the bill and they said no no little wings no silver mount zion so he basically strong armed them and we got added to all the books (laughs) 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 I, i love all these people that we're talking about by the way so i know you do um that's, did that sound weird? I know you do. That no. Like, I sounded like sounded, a shitty therapist. The del- <laughs> no, delivery was perfect. I'm, st- I'm getting, you got to have Tim Rattuli on this podcast because I really want to test out this theory that your voices sound the same. I would, I would love to. That would be so weird. Like, what if you were like, wait a second, like... Back up, Bob. Like, you're like, like it's, I, I think the laughs are different, but there's some uh, overlap. That makes sense. It does. Yeah. Um, yeah, if he grew up in that area, I grew up in the burbs, so it's just you get, yeah, there's a cadence. and uh, I'm into it. It's comforting to me. I mean, yeah, what a town. Well, I want to. Is there anything else you want to cover? Is there anything I. Oh, yeah. I have. Um, how long do yours usually run? They usually go about an hour. Cool. You could chop this down too. Like, don't be afraid to subtract and just put in whatever you want, you know? Because maybe, who knows? But, um, yeah, I'd like to add just as far as a few little plugs. Um, there are some reissues coming out of my own records. Discover World of Wonder, the second record, is experiencing its first vinyl pressing on Group Tightener. That's the name of the label. It's here in Los Angeles. And um, Magic Wand, 2005's Magic Wand, is experiencing a vinyl repressing. There were 500 made the first time in the year of our Lord, 2005. And now we're doing a Gnome Life reissue who also did the Light Green Leaves reissue of the, from the same band, Little Wings. And they, they kind of got us onto the foil kick. He like does the foil... Um, 
lettering, it's really nice. Um, and there is a lathe cut coming up, which is like where they make each of the records by hand on a lathe machine. And sometimes they sound really great. And this one is for Wonderoo Preview, which would be the second and a half album ever. And that, those are all kind of in the works right now. And did you have a cassette come out? I know you, you're doing something with Perpetual Doom. I did, yep. I had a cassette come out with them that was titled Rosie's Own. And Rosie was our prized um, cockatiel, just like our favorite. And she passed away on Valentine's Day this year. And I named the record that before that happened, of course. And um, I can't really listen to it because we can't really look at pictures of her or listen to her voice. And um, it was, uh, but she's all over Rosie's house. I don't know why it's called Rosie's house because we were sitting outside with her in a cage and we'd made a music video for the previous two days and we decided to record one evening um, to make a cassette that he just recorded with his video camera. I've saw that, I've seen that on YouTube. Right. And I'm sorry about, I, I, people don't, I think if, unless you have pets, people don't realize how painful losing a pet or even having your pet injured, like. I, I kind of, sort of didn't grow up with them because we, we kind of had birds, but we weren't, we weren't attached birds, but mom liked kittens and puppies more than cats and dogs. And I really later learned that like, no, like we're giving this to a shelter or we're giving this here. Like it ripped the wallpaper in the kitchen and that was a no, no, <laughs> like that didn't work. So I, that was when I was like, like pretty young. So I didn't experience that fully until this time. And it was like losing a certain kind of family member. Absolutely. Some, someone that you've spent so many hours with. And my, my wife and I both travel for work. So from time to time, one of us could be here alone for weeks on end with this animal companion. And, um, yeah, it's, it's really hard to get over. Yeah, I, I have, I've had a dog for 12 years. I have two dogs, but the one mm -hmm. I've met, and he recently had to have, like, oral surgery. And like it was just like I like it was heartbreaking because I was like it was like and it's you know he's fine but it's like you know I'd look at him and I think you know people when, say that because they do not speak English and we can't exactly understand what exactly what they mean but because of that we look in their eyes even deeper and then we're like no I know exactly what he means <laughs> like, it's like it's that much more heartbreaking because you're like oh my god 
they understand like they understand enough of what's going on that they're giving us that real look and you're like it's like those one dogs that like their eyes are spaced out almost exactly the same width as a human and they're like <laughs> turned they turn to you and you're like human dog man costume no sorry you're actually a dog like you're not just a man staring out through a dog yeah yeah my i've had moments in life where like i just had like you know something horrible happen and i would be like i was sobbing and my dog like they didn't like you know they came over and like knew something was up and comforted and it's like Definitely. you can't tell me that there's not some kind of there's a lot of people who are cynical they're like well it's because you feed them and it's like no there's something else there man because you don't live with something for 12 years and not there's they have a bond and whoever said that either had never had a dog or it just doesn't really make that many connections with anything and they, and they did have a dog and they're like yeah nothing nothing here it's it's not me uh, you're right he's a, a, a individual who is incapable of making true human or any kind of connection everything is intellectualized and so it's like is that right yeah it's totally correct is he a, is he a bookworm from chicago <laughs> <laughs> yeah he he's uh he's like a super intelligent but also just f- f- everything is a everything is uh chess moves there is no everything is a move there you can't and it's just like i'm like uh, good luck enjoy that world of emptiness <laughs> did he did he do a lot of college no he uh latchkey kid very Uh well read super like i think a little probably dropped out of college i believe Uh and a brilliant like you know brilliant creative person but just like but there's nothing it's just like you're a machine like everything is math like oh this is how the I would just as an arm, an amateur, uh, <laughs> uh, what do they call it, armchair psychologist. I would say he got hurt so bad once that like he's never trusting again. Maybe I would one hundred percent. I'd know that. Like, so it's just like armadillo skin. Yeah, but it's like I, I had a lot of. Uh, I had a rough fucking childhood, and I, st- you know, I mean, I, maybe we all react. Beating, beatings, divorce. What'd you, what'd you get? Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I got, I got a beat by a little bit by dad. Dad died when I was thirteen in a very violent uh, way, which I was, uh, I uh, was there for. Uh, uh, I got the shit kicked out of me by the neighborhood kids. I mean, like. There's like bullying, and then I got, I don't know what level, but it was pretty, you know, pretty, pretty bad. <laughs> um, That's rough. That sounds. But I feel like that taught. I feel from that came empathy and an understanding of other people's pain and suffering instead of turning off which seems to me like that's just going to fester into a tumor good luck with that like right no that's that's absolutely true you got to keep it like alan watts says like this you got to keep the stream flowing so to speak in some way because i got i mean i went to college for fine arts undergraduate fine arts degree because I could draw and I did not have any idea of what I should 
be studying at, at college. And um, I remember, for me, that sort of ultra, I don't know, academia and, and having to constantly be critically thinking. I was kind of like, okay, this is good for writing books and for staying in college and passing this on to other people. But it, and it will sharpen the, the edge of the blade of your mind. But I think there, there's such a fine balance kind of like between selling out to a feeling and kind of just getting a taste of it and absorbing it into what you've already got going on. Mm-hmm. I, I found myself wanting to be a good thinker a little bit for a little while, and now I think of it as kind of embarrassing. I was like, <laughs> that's cute. I was like trying to, be- to become a, quote, intellectual, <laughs> which it, my mind and body, like you got to balance them both. So, well, if you're going to use your mind that hard, you, I hope you're jumping a rope like a hundred times a day or like whatever. Otherwise, you you know, you become that character in uh, The Simpsons, which the guy who's hunched over, you know, it's like Tales from the Crypt, a living kind of corpse if you don't, if all you do is think, you know. Yeah, I've always... You're just... Yeah. I feel like, I mean, yeah, I've always uh, followed emotion and, like, instincts and you know where i probably didn't pan out so well with career (laughs) because but i was like look at you now though to me like look at you now you have the poise and focus to reach out to a stranger whose work you're aware of and enjoy and carry on a conversation and like i want to do that like that, I'm. I haven't hung out with very many people since March, and I feel like we're hanging out right now. Like I don't want this to end. Are you, do you hear me, Matt? Like you said, you said an hour. It's fucking bullshit. You know it. It's like we gotta make it a two-parter. <laughs> conversations with matt dwyer do me a favor subscribe to the podcast remember to rate and review it and if you like become a patreon supporter at patreon.com slash matt dwyer conversations with dwyer also listen to my friend's podcast hunk by mike bridenstein and kilgallen's pub with joe kilgallen thank you so much for listening i look forward to seeing you again you said you said an hour it's fucking bullshit you know it it's like we gotta make it a two-parter